Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me because I've seen a, a couple new faces, my name's Justin Boyer. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. Um, a little bit about where we're going and where we're going to go today and where we've been. So the past couple months we've been in First John, the past two weeks, Elderberry and Pastor Matt have been talking about Elderberry, Elderberry. have been talking about imposter Christs, these Christs that either we set up or that we uh, interact with the world and in the church and with our friends, that we put this imposter Christ and we kind of live our life through that Christ, but it's not the real Christ, and either we do this willingly or sometimes we do this just ignorantly, that we don't have a, a big picture of who Jesus is. Next week, we're going to have a really sweet time. If you'll notice, we actually skipped over a couple of verses um, from where we were. It's because we don't like them, and so we're just going to ignore them. No, that's not true. If you're new here, that's not true. <laughs> um, uh, next week, we're going to go back to those verses, and we're going to actually have a really sweet corporate time that'll be a little bit different than our normal somebody up here talking, um, which there will be that, but it'll be a little bit more familial time together. So if you can make it next week, please do. Um, in two weeks, Jay and hopefully Sherry, which I don't even know if Sherry knows this, are going to be talking about how to love the world. Did you know that, Sherry? Okay. Uh, <laughs> about how to love the world, okay? But today we're going to talk about the verse in First John that says, do not love the world. Do not love the world. So today we're kind of looking at the negative, which isn't bad side of things, do not love the world. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at how do we interact and engage the world around us because Christ loved the world, that God so loved the world. So a little bit of today is foundational to that. So let's read the text. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it'll be up here on the screen. And then I'll pray and we'll get started. 1 John is towards the back of your biblioteca, which is library. I know, Jake. Thank you, Jake. Verse 15, chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. God, as we think upon your word today, as we contemplate with our hearts and our minds and our spirits, as we do this together, as you uh, speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray that we would um, find assurance in you alone, Jesus, that there's so many things that we want to uh, tie ourselves to in this world that we're tempted to tie ourselves to that are, that are passing away. And uh, as we prayed this morning on the worship team, that you are the anchor, that you are the constant love, that you are the constant truth, that you are the constant life, you are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. So I pray today as we all come from different places, from different perspectives of who you are, Father, of who you are, Jesus, of who you are, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would speak to us and that we would hear what you have to say and that you would um, give us your grace to receive that and to um, go out into the world and speak truth and grace 
to receive your love, the Father's love for the world. So thanks for your word towards us. Um, Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your blood, for your covenant. We pray this in your name. Amen. So big, this is, this is not a new idea. The world and the Father are not compatible. If we read this, uh, these three verses of Scripture over and over again, the world and the Father are not compatible, and we've uh, joined First John to James in the past. Last year we were in the book of James, and here's a verse from James that says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is not necessarily a new idea, but in saying that the world and the Father are not compatible, as we have been going through, definitions are really important. Like when you hear that, when you hear the world, what are you thinking? Because that's going to change how you view this statement, how you live out of this statement, Um, And we don't want to fall into some of the tendencies that, as we've been learning about these Gnostic heresies, these false teachers that are in the book of 1 John, where they kind of want to say that the world, the created world, is separate from God, completely separate, meaning like it is completely evil and only spirit is good, that the physicalness of life is bad and only spirit is good, and yet that is not what the scriptures teach us, right? That when God created the world, he created it good. And it is through man's rebellion, through our turning to try to make ourselves like God, that um, sin has entered, sin has twisted, this brokenness and everything else. So when we say that the, the world and the Father are not compatible, we, we, we really need to be careful of definitions. And so we're just going to take a moment to think about the definition of the world, specifically how John uses it. And so to kind of go through this idea of uh, definitions being important, I think this is from West Side Story. This is a gang from West... Is, who is this? Sharks? Jets? Is that... People know that? That's awesome. I didn't have no idea. It's a playground. So my family uh, and I ran into a gang last weekend. Um, we were walking. It was a Saturday morning. The girls were trying to figure out how to appropriately uh, go to an intersection where they wouldn't get run over by the cars but they would also be out far enough to see where they were coming and they would stop. And so we were going down the alleyways of Lebanon and we turned the corner on Weidman Street to go to the little park there and there is a gang. And the gang is there and the gang is dressed in their um, colors. The, 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 they're wielding weapons and such. And it was kind of this thing that was kind of like, huh. It was kind of off-putting. You know, it was kind of like, what's going on here? Maybe not even off-putting, but this is, we're not used to this. We're not used to seeing this gang. But when I say the word gang, I don't mean this kind of gang. I don't mean the criminal, uh, yeah, I don't mean the the musical uh, (laughs) punch-fight dancing type thing that's going on here. What I mean is this kind of a gang, is that last Saturday, a group of people, this isn't specifically them, but I stole this off of Jake's Facebook page, that the people that were there, the gang that was there, the group that was there was from the United Way, and they were participating in the United Way Day of Caring. And so when we hear the word gang, our, our mind might automatically go negative. You know what I mean? But definitionally, it doesn't need to be. The definitionally, it can just be a group of people that assemble together for a, for, for a purpose. We're a gang, kind of. Cornerstone's a gang. And so the, and so the insignia that they were wearing, the, the gang colors that they were wearing... They were blue and white and said, live united. And the weapons that they had were not switchblades or brass knuckles or whatever. I don't even know what, that, that seems like a really outdated thing. 
I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Is it? Okay. They weren't, it wasn't that stuff. The weapons that they had were brooms and trash bags and gloves and everything else. And they weren't there to uh, desecrate the land. They were actually there to help recreate it. That these people that did not live in this spot that I know of were there to just love their neighbor. And that, was a, that was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful thing. So this idea of definitions of certain words that we hear are important. One other example, the idea of a club. If you go on dictionary.com and look at the word club, there are, I think, 15 different definitions of club. So right now when I say club, one of them is going to come out to you. Maybe three or four of them are going to come out to you. So there's, you know, the sporting utensil, the golf clubs. There is the sandwich, the delicious sandwich of layers that are in there. There's also any kind of group. This is from Napoleon Dynamite, the Happy Hands Club. Okay, that could be a type of club. There's the club that cavemen or medieval warriors would use to beat people. There is the, the club, the, the card club, you know, the symbol on, uh, on cards. There is a, a nautical term for club or club foot, which I couldn't even find a picture of. I could only get a definition of, which I didn't know of. And then there's also the club, the dance club, the club that you go with the lights and the music and the everything like that. So here we have, whatever, seven or eight different... Uh, definitions of club, and depending on where you use them, if you think it's one thing, but it's really another thing, you could be really confused. You know, you could be really confused. So, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world. What is John saying with this word world? John uses this f- five times, but three times mainly. Okay? The word here that he uses is cosmos. If you want to say it a little differently, you could say cosmos. And this is, these are the three different ways he uses it in his writing, the, 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 the pastor, the preacher that wrote First John. The first is the created world, the realm of existence. So when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Jesus was in, or when John says, Jesus was in the world, this is uh, 1 verse 10, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He's probably talking about this first definition of cosmos. Second definition is the people who inhabit the earth. So the people that are not necessarily the physical, um, uh, they are physical creations, but they're not the earth itself, but the people that are on the earth. All of us in here, uh, John uses to some degree, are the world. And here he probably uses this term definitionally in the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. But then there's this third way, this third way where John uses mostly in his writings of scripture. This idea of the system or the people aligned against God's kingdom, willfully rejecting or ignoring Jesus. Before I go any further, I just want everybody to know that we have all been there, and we have all done this. So I don't want any kind of elitism to come out when we talk about the world and be like, oh, at least I don't do that. That person over there might. I know Chad, hmm, Chad. <laughs> but me, I'm good. None of us were born um, perfect. Scriptures actually tell us we were born broken and that we need outside help to come to us. That we need the gospel of truth and of grace and of righteousness to come to us. That we need the blood of Jesus to come to us to make us whole. So all of us have engaged in the world in one way or another. And so these definitions are important whenever we think about what John is saying, and he uses the word world. Think about what is he saying here? 
because they're kind of intertwined, right? They're not exactly the same thing, but the world is in the world which could be in the world, right? The world is in the world which could be in the world. So we are not to give ourselves over to the commandments of the world. We are not to give ourselves over, we're not to love, we're not to agape the world in this way. To think of what are the commandments that the world is saying and follow those commandments. What are the values that the world, the system uh, that's aligned against God, are saying and align ourselves with that. What are the values, the commands, the vision of the world? And so First John is saying, do not love the world. He's not saying do not love the world, do not love the people. He's not even saying don't love those who reject God, right? Because all of us, one way or another, were slash are enemies of God from one standpoint of scripture. And yet God still sent his son to us to redeem us. It's not that there's something uh, um, good in us that he uh, wants to get back necessarily. It's that his love is so pure for us that even in our broken state, he wants to redeem us because we are his creatures, right? Because he has created us. That God has created every single person in this room and he wants to call us sons and daughters. And the way he wants to adopt us into that family is through us entering into relationship, us trusting in the work, the good news of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, who died and rose again on the third day. So even in this third idea of, of, of world, do not love the world, it means don't align yourself with the values of the world because you're going to need to love the world. If you take your bulletin, great quote. This tension that we feel in the word uh, cosmos is really summed up nice in here. This is from John Stott, if you want to take your bulletin out. And this really gets to the heart of what does it mean for, for me as a Christian, as me a follower in Christ, to be in the places that I'm at. Do I isolate myself and go in my li- little Christian uh, click group, or do I actually interact with the world? And can I interact with the world and not necessarily take the values of the world on myself? It is one of the great paradoxes of Christian living that the whole church is called, and every member of it, as much to involvement in the world as to separation from it. As much to worldliness, in quotes, as to holiness. Not to a worldliness which is unholy, nor to a holiness which is unworldly, but to a holy worldliness. A true separation to God which is lived out in the world. The world which he made and sent his son to redeem. So it's almost like in thinking about um, the whole council of scripture, especially John, it's like we're, we're, supposed to cosmos, we're supposed to love the cosmos, we're supposed to love the cosmos, but we're not supposed to love the cosmos. And you see how that's kind of complicated? But we have his spirit. We have grace. We have this thing that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God working within us to, tr- to try to figure these things out, to try to actually love our neighbor in the way we're meant to love our neighbor through the grace and truth of who Jesus is. And it is complicated, and we should just say, oh, this is complicated. Because a lot of times, I either want to engage the world in a way where I'm like totally in it, you know what I mean? That I'm kind of taking on all the values that are being set around me. And these values don't need to necessarily be carnal values necessarily. And I want to engage that, but then I, I miss Christ in it completely. Like I miss this space of actually talking to somebody about some of the depths of who they are, about who Jesus is, about what he has done in my life and what I see him do in other people's lives. Or I want to go and isolate myself in a little group where the only people I'm actually around are other Christians that think like me, 
that vote like me, ooh, that have the same values that I have. And so I isolate myself, whether it's in my family, my personal family, whether it's in my church, and don't really give an eye or an ear to those outside of that group. And I'm not even in the world. I'm not loving the world. I'm so separated from the world that I'm, kinda, I'm almost of no earthly good. So this idea of holy worldliness is something to consider and something to think about where we can actually love the people that are different than us. We can actually love people that are sinning right in front of us, but love them and give ourselves not over to their values, but to love our neighbors as Christ loved us. And that's a hard spot to be because we automatically want to go to incorrect or immoral judgment, like, well, you can't do this. That might be true. That might be true that the way they are living their life is not good. It's not healthy. It's actually breaking them down. But the thing that they need is not just a life change, is that they need to be in fellowship with God. That they need to be fellow, in fellowship with Jesus. And that stuff will come. So again, on Easter we talked about that the good news is good news. That the gospel is not about good advice. The gospel is not about good ideas. But it's about what Jesus has done historically. His life, death, and resurrection. A great picture of this, I'm not going to read it because it's a long chapter, but if you want to read it later, 2 Kings 5, the story of Naaman. Does anybody know that name, Naaman? Does everybody, anybody remember the story a little bit? Man, so there's a whole bunch of stuff in this story of Naaman. Um, I'm just going, there's so much that I'm not going to hit on all the parts. So Naaman was a commander in the Syrian army. Uh, Syria was not on Israel's side by any means, and he was really successful, and he actually served the king. And this guy, Naaman, um, they went and did a raid and they actually kidnapped a little girl from Israel. And that little girl became a uh, servant to Naaman's wife. And the thing about Naaman is that even though he was really successful militarily, he was also unhealthy. He had leprosy. He had leprosy. And this little girl, who was a captive, said, oh, I wish you could go to my homeland and talk to the prophets. I bet they could heal you. Which, again, there's so much to this story about us, uh, I can't get into it. So, and so Naaman's like, oh, okay. So he goes to the Syrian king. He talks to the Syrian king. Hey, can you write a letter to this other king? I want to go uh, peacefully into this land, and I want to be healed. So the Syrian king writes this letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel's like, this is a trick. This is some kind of thing that's going to happen. We're like, oh, we come in peace. And then all of a sudden, bam, they're going to attack us. Who, who does this guy think I am? Am I God to be able to heal this this man, Elisha, a prophet of the Lord, hears this, overhears this, and he's like, send him to me. Send him to me. So Naaman comes with all of these carts filled with gold and silver and whatever else they traded with back then that was of high importance, and he comes to Elijah's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out. He actually sends a servant that's within his house, say, hey, deliver this message to Naaman. I see him out there. Say, hey, go into the Jordan, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan, and you will be clean. Naaman is furious at this. Two reasons. Why? Because he traveled all this way and Elisha won't talk to him. Okay, he has to send a servant out. And two, he's like, you want me to bathe in the Jordan? And so you have this little uh, kind of, um, this, this gang space where like, if you're going to tell me to bathe, go tell me to bathe in a cleaner river than the Jordan. Don't tell me to go bathe in the Quiddy. Okay, let's go into some kind of place that where the water is at least clean and then let it wash out. So there's almost this idea of that our, my water back in my hometown is a lot better than this Jordan water, which is filthy and disgusting and filled with all the stuff of you Israelites. And so he's coming back 
And one of the servants that's with him on the trip is like, didn't, didn't you hear what Elisha said? Didn't you hear what he said? He said he could heal you. Like, you're not going to pass this up, right? You're not going to pass this up, right? And so Naaman caves in a good way. And so he goes into the Jordan seven times down. And then he gets up and he's clean and his leprosy is healed. He comes back to Elisha and he's like, thank you. I want to give you all this money for what you've done. I'm sorry I thought differently. I want to give you all this money. Elisha's like, no, this was the Lord that did it. I don't want your money, yada, yada, yada. And so then they get into this conversation and, and, and Naaman's like, I understand that your God, the true God, the one God of Israel, our God, the Father God, he is the only God. And I'm not going to worship and make sacrifices and offerings to other gods anymore. Now, a lot of backstory for this one part. This is the only part I actually want you to think about. And then Naaman asks Elisha to pardon him or to talk to God about pardoning him because one of um, Naaman's jobs was to help the Syrian king worship idols. What he would do as a Syrian king was probably really old, and so they would come into this temple with idol or idols or whatever, I don't know, and he would actually be a crutch. Naaman would be a crutch so that, the, so that the, the Syrian king could get down on his knees and bow before a false god. Now, if you know the Old Testament, false gods and idolatry are not smiled upon, right? And yet, listen, Elisha just says, go in peace. Elisha does not say, change what you are doing, change how you are serving. The Lord, and this is reading between the lines, okay? The only thing in scripture it says, it says, go in peace. He doesn't say, you need to get out of there. He doesn't say, you need to remove yourself from that idolatrous worship. Because Naaman just confessed who the real God is. And so he's in this place of idol worship while not giving himself over to idol worship. And yet he's still serving the king, a pagan king that does not know the Lord. And that blows my mind, right? And there's so many things, especially... Um, right now that we can think about this and pray about this is that he didn't say for him to leave that area and go. No, because God sees something there. That there's something in here where Naaman was able to love the world but not love the world, right? That he was able to enter into this idea of holy worldliness. Of holy worldliness. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. We've gone over this a cornerstone um, a couple different times. I just wanted to uh, remind you of the complementary places in Scripture where kind of this generality of what is in the world shows up. How it shows up both in the garden with the temptation of Adam and Eve. How it shows up in the temptation of Christ in the desert when he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And I just want you to look at this list and consider how are you uh, tempted? How are you drawn out? How are you um, asked to love the world in these ways? How are you asked to not trust in God that he is completely sufficient, but that there's something that I need to do to cover myself? Maybe it's your clothes. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your image. Maybe it's your perceived image on social media as compared to your real image. 
So as we look at these things, what, what stands out to you? Do you try to prove yourself rather than resting in who Christ says you are as a son or as a daughter of his? And these are hard questions, right? To actually be able to look at ourselves in this place. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. These are the things of the world and they are not of the Father. Now, one thing I don't want us to think that I don't want me to think is again that these things look bad. The temptations of the world, you know, uh, uh, Jesus says, uh, you will have tribulations in this world. The temptations of this world don't always look bad. They don't always look carnal. It's not like, oh, you murdered somebody. That's obvious. Don't kill people, okay? But what are these other more subtle things that are going on? I have two examples for you. One's a secular example, very secular example, and one is a religious example. Zach, are you ready with sound? Sweet. Okay, so before I show you these videos, I want you, I want you to know a couple things as watching. I think the first video is hilarious, and I want to be their friends. Um, I wish I had more atheist friends. I do. And there's this, there's this part of me that God is developing, and, and his grace um, is giving to me of not just being around the people that I feel comfortable being around, and he's giving that grace to you too. Okay, so this first one, I think the video is hilarious. I think it's good marketing, but it's marketing. You know what I mean? It's, it's creative, but the thing that they're doing is just like, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you why I love these videos, because it's such a call to the church. And the second one is a religious one. So can you dim the lights a little bit, Zachary? Okay, the first one is the atheist church known as the Sunday Assembly. Please work. Okay. Turn it up! Hi, I'm Samson. And I'm Pippa. And together we started the Sunday Assembly. It's all the best bits of church, but with no religion and awesome pop songs. It's a celebration of life. And it's not a cult. But, but that's exactly, exactly what we'd say if it were a cult. To explain this properly, let's begin at the beginning. It was almost three years ago, and we were in a car driving to Bath. Would you rather... Just two comedians going to a gig. Nostril just above your bottom. When it turned out, we both wanted to do something like church for people who didn't believe in God, but did believe in good. We started in London in January, and now hundreds meet twice a month to hear great talks, sing awesome songs, help in the community, and share tea and cake. But no Kool-Aid. The funny thing (laughs) was, it accidentally went a little bit viral. More and more of London's atheists are waking up on a Sunday morning and going to church. It turns out there are loads of people out there who want to live better, help often, and wonder more. There's already one in Melbourne, New York, Bristol, and Brighton. By the end of the year, there'll be 30. That's a 3,000% growth rate, I think. So did you get that? It's church without God. They serve their community. Great. They get together and they fellowship with one another. Okay? Great. Everybody needs community. They even, they even come for teaching to some degree. But they're doing it without God. They believe in good, but they don't believe in God. I'll address that in a minute. Second one, so that's a secular version of the world, in my opinion. Here's the religious version of the world. This is an invitation to freedom. Man can save his soul. 
like a bright, cool dawn after a night of prison and of thunder. We can taste that freedom. Sought so long. It has not come with the blares of trumpets or the flare and flash of flame. It's come quietly, and you aren't at all sure you should believe it. The mysteries of existence lie before our eyes. You are a spirit. You are your own soul. website. Lights. These two uh, things in culture right now excite me to no end. Why? Because it is making the church, Jesus Christ's church, ask what is the church? Why do we gather Sunday mornings? Who are we as the church, as a people? Because in both of these things, Christ the person is completely absent. And that's one of the definitions of worldliness that is bad. Doing all the things, all the benefits, all this other stuff. There was stuff in there that was very Christian and, and very scriptural, right? Like the idea of freedom, but the idea of how you, the, the, the lady at the beginning said, I can save myself, man can save himself. I'm here to tell you, you can't. You can't. And to not listen to that. But Jesus can save you. And continue to save you as we get into fellowship with him, as we are in fellowship and we're abiding in him. That big word again, abiding, abiding, abiding in him. And so again, the big thing, it's, 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 it's exciting because we have to ask. So we have, if we have good music, if we have uh, somebody up here talking at least somewhat interestingly, uh, only about 5% of you have nodded off so far. And we're hanging out together, we're singing songs. Like, what's the difference between us and them? Ser- yeah, right, Jesus. Is, there, is that difference there? Is that the focal point? Is that, is that who we're here for? And there's a bunch of people here. I'm not even going to assume everybody here knows Christ. But I want everybody here to know that we gather here on Sunday mornings to seek after Jesus, to seek after God to try to figure out this stuff, this grace that has come to us to know him more and to lift up his name and to worship him. And I understand that you might not believe in Jesus. I understand that you might not believe in the Father's love, and I just want to tell you that the Father's love is real and that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is real. And there's a ton of questions everybody has, even Christians in this room, about who God is. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, I got it figured out finally. But Jesus needs to remain the core, the center. Not doing church without him, not doing good works without him, which is great. I'm glad that that atheist church is helping their community. I am. They're prospering the common good. 
But we need to ask ourselves, what is the church? Who is the church? What is that separation that it talks about in having this holy, uh, holy worldliness? Not just worldliness, but a holy worldliness. Next verse, verse 17. Joy, you can bring your team up. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here John lines out really succinctly just this idea of temporary versus eternal. Like he just says it clear as day. If I rearrange the the sentence fragments a little bit, and rightfully so, not to make it say what I want it to say, is that, and the world along with its desires is passing away. While is the eternal, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so there's this thing that is in conflict within the world. This temporary versus the eternal. And again, when you hear temporary, don't think, well, we'll just care about the spirit or soul. The other thing that that uh, Scientology video said, and that Scientologists are, are Gnostics. When it says that you are a spirit, reminder that you are a spirit, you are actually flesh and blood and bone too. Because the body is not evil, the body is not bad as far as it being a created thing. And that your resurrection from the dead in the future will be an embodied, uh, you will be an embodied person. You're not going to be some spirit that is floating up playing uh, harps. Is that what they call them? Those harps. Or being in heaven doing, uh, floating on a cloud with a loincloth. You're going to be embodied. You're going to have some kind of awesome transformed body that we see in Christ. Again, our hope, our anchor for faith, hope, and love is in Christ, that that anchor. And so John is saying here, he's going back to a lot of what the other uh, gospel writers would say, is that you can only serve one master. You can only serve the the world, or you can only serve God, serve Christ. You can't serve both. It It doesn't work. But again, and I want to drive this point home again, is that we can be in the world. Remember, Jesus didn't say, that he wanted to take us out. When he prayed for the disciples, when Jesus prayed for the disciples and Jesus prayed for believers in John 17, he said, I I pray not that you would take them out of the world. We should think about what that means. When he says world, which of those definitions do you think he means? I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them uh, protected from the evil one. So it's like being able to be in this place of the world and not being overcome by the evil one, but rather be overcomers only because Christ has overcome. Right before his death, John 16, Christ says, take heart. You're going to be scattered. You think you believe in me now? I'm going to go through this stuff and you're going to leave me. But take heart, cornerstone, for I, Jesus, have overcome the world. And again, it's not that we're, uh, the, Jesus, the Father, wants to take us out of the world. What does that mean again? World. But that he wants to protect us from the evil one. To be salt and light. To love God. To love our neighbor. And so what are the things that come up against this right now with you? Is it, is it the idea of image? Is it the idea of being, uh, protecting yourself rather than uh, trusting in God? Um, is it, is it how people, even other Christians, are going to view me? You know what I mean? If I'm in these places that that group of Christians would call shady. But then also, is my heart, is my being towards God and towards the love that I have received from him? Because we can swing the other way, right? 
where we just think everything's up for grabs, and we actually, we're part of the world then. Like, we value those things that the world values. And John says, do not value. Do not give yourself over to those commandments. Do not give yourself over to those, um, those ways of the world. I have a better way. Jesus has a better way. And so in that, we have to remember, uh, as, as Barry and Matt preached a couple weeks ago, about this one commandment of loving one another, to love one another. We have to remember the inception of that in the Gospel of John. And it says, to love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. That's important. Not just love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. Because it would be easy to love one another without loving each other like Christ loved us, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. I have no doubt that the, uh, the atheist church is trying to love one another. They're just not trying to love one another as Christ has loved necessarily. And this idea of loving God and loving others needs to be joined together in everything that we do. Because either we become super spiritual and we forget about our neighbor, or we become so humanistic that we forget about God and leave him out. We become a godless people. And the church is not meant to be a godless people, right? The only reason we exist is because of Jesus. The only reason the world exists is because of Christ, and because of his love, and because of his grace. So the good news in all this, the good news in all this is the fact if we would go back to um, those temptations and everything, that Christ has overcome the world, right? In his temptation of all of this stuff, that the evil one comes against him, uh, uh, telling him that, you know, why don't you prove yourself you're hungry? We'll make something Um, turn these stones into bread, or I'm going to take you to the top of this temple. Why don't you cast yourself down so that you can prove to everybody else who you really are? Or this idea that I will give you all of this stuff. I will give you all of this glory. I will give you all of these worldly things if you bow down and worship me, me being the accuser, the evil one, Satan. And he says, no, man does not live on bread alone, but man lives on every word of God. He says, you shall not test God. Jesus also says, you shall love the Lord your God only. You shall worship him only and serve him only. And so the things that we are inadequate in, Christ is completely adequate in. And again, this idea of not mustering up uh, our own salvation and our own feeling good, as in the Scientology thing, but that receiving the truth and the life of Christ that is outside of ourselves, and then he comes and makes his home within us as we trust in him, as we turn to him, as we repent of trying to be our own God. And that's the big thing. And all of these things, we're trying to be our own God, one way or another. That's how we are tempted in every portion of our life, ultimately. It goes back all the way to Genesis 3, right? And there's just different variations of this. And yet we are called, Ephesians 5, to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children to help the world flourish, to love the world the way Christ loved the world, but to not love the world. Love the world, but don't love the world. I hope that's confusing for you, and I hope you wrestle with that. So as we uh, finish up in worship today, if you didn't notice, the first set of worship was very much so about this is the Father's world. You know what I mean? This is the Father's world. On the back end of things, this first song we're going to sing and and, uh, focus on, our attention to who Christ is, is this idea that this world has nothing for me, okay? And I will follow you. Again, remember, it's not that God wants to 
take you completely out of stuff, but we are not, God, Jesus, John, calls us to value the things of God, not the things of this world. 